Getting the big prophetic picture from the books of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon next on Light on the Hill. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Cause all I need is. While the books of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon aren't generally known as prophetic, we'll learn today on Light on the Hill they are essential to Bible prophecy. We'll start off in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 10, which speaks of the importance of sharpening the axe. Pastor James Cadiz relates this to working efficiently, especially in the area of Bible prophecy. How about this? It says this, verse 10, if the iron be blunt and he do not wet the edge, then must he put to more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. What does that mean? Think about it. I have an ax. If I take an ax and I don't sharpen it, wetting it, is that what, that's what that means. If I don't sharpen the ax and I take a blunt ax, it doesn't have any sharpening, and I swing it at a tree, I'll be swinging at that tree forever. And I'm not cutting anything down. But if I take the time to sharpen that, the edge of that ax, everybody wants to just do it. Come on, swing, swing, swing. How many people do you hear say, you just work hard. And as long as you work hard, everything will be okay. Not true. Here's the promise as long as you work hard. As long as you work hard, you're guaranteed to get tired. Nothing wrong with that. Getting tired is a sign of hard work. That's good. It's not just working hard. Just working hard will, working hard your whole life will get you to the place where you were able to survive, but you had nothing to show for it, right? It's about working hard and being efficient. It's about working hard and harnessing the work that you are capable of doing to accomplish and meet a greater purpose, right? The person who just works hard is the person that will inherit $100,000 and whittle that $100,000 down and do nothing with it and spend it and in 10 years or 10 months will have nothing to show for. The person who takes the time to sharpen the axe will actually take that $100,000 and do something profitable with it so that it will be part of a feeding process that lasts for the rest of their lives and the generations to come. Make sense? How does this apply to Bible prophecy? Think about it. Really, truly think about it. How many guys out there have you heard teach Bible prophecy that all they do is regurgitate the things that are being told in the same circle again and again and again? How many times have you heard that? I hear it all the time. All those guys are a dime a dozen. I can name them by name and it would shock you. If you sat them down, and you started watching their ministries one by one, and you started comparing them to one another. And what you'll realize is, if one principle gets shared here, then about two weeks later, it'll get shared by another group. And then two weeks later, it gets shared by another group. And you know what they begin to do? They start mimicking one another. Because they're working hard. But what they're doing is, they're swinging as hard as they can, 
listening to conventional mechanisms around them, but not doing anything about it. Just continuing to grind along and they're making terrible mistakes, right? How many guys do you hear get a phone call and ask a question and, and you hear them say, look, I have some pretty extensive knowledge about this issue, but I don't understand the full implications of the question you're asking right now. So let me go back and understand the matter a little bit and I'll get back to you. How many times do you hear guys say that? They never say that. They all have an answer and they all make their assumptions and they all say this is the way it's gonna go. But when they don't understand the matter, what do they do? They're just hitting that tree with a blunt of metal, not doing anything, right? Sharpen the ax. There's a powerful, practical piece of advice, right? In that God wants you to take your hard work and to be wise with the execution of that hard work in that you will allow it to, to be able to provide for you something that can be greatly beneficial, right? I talked to somebody about this recently that came to me and they said, Pastor James, I inherited a million dollars. And I was, I was just wondering, like, what should I do with it? I just want to donate it to the church. Said, okay. I got permission to discuss this, by the way. Okay, just so you know, I'm not putting anybody on the spot. Said, okay. What about future? You thinking about anything related to the future? Well, I don't really have kids. I don't have family. I don't have, the, okay, all right. Has God told you to do this? Well, I just think it's the right thing. No, no, has God told you? Okay, no, all right. Assuming that you haven't heard anything from God, just stop for a moment and let's get practical for just a second, okay? First of all, you're gonna pay a hefty tax on your inheritance. Have you put that money aside, number one? Well, how much money is that gonna be? I hate to tell you this, about 40%. What? $400,000? Yes. Is there any way I can get away with paying less? Yeah. There's a process of reinvesting that you can go through to be able to save yourself from that mistake. By the way, none of what I'm saying should be constituted as financial advice to anybody, okay? <laughs> Only a foolish person that will swing an ax that hasn't been sharpened will listen to what I'm saying, right? I'm giving one specific example in one specific circumstance. And what we began to talk about was what opportunities are put in front of you to be able to take that million dollars and allow it to make you several million more? You say you want to bless the church? Do me a favor. Go make three or four million more and then bless the church with the million you wanted to bless it with. How about you stop for a moment and understand what is practically in your hand and take all the hard work you've done your whole life and apply it to actually allowing a residual mechanism to exist to provide for you something that will keep you sustained. Make sense? Right? This is, a, this is Ecclesiastes word right here, right? This is a word from Ecclesiastes. Well, how does that apply to the principle of Bible prophecy? Well, I get, went over one application. Here's another application. This is one that's powerful and one that people don't think about, especially in context of this Acts passage about swinging the Acts. Did anybody ever think about the fact that your understanding of Bible prophecy can be directly proportional to not only the amount of work you're willing to put into it, faith, trust, all the things that we talked about, but did you ever think about the fact that applying this type of principle within the context of Bible prophecy 
allows the benefit of your knowledge and understanding of it to increase substantially? There's a difference between a guy who would say this, right? Well, the Bible says this is going to happen and not do anything about it because they don't believe in it. Then there's a guy, a friend of mine, I can actually talk about this, is a friend of mine. He gets hit up by somebody in Israel who says, look, I don't know if you know this, but I think Israel has a lot of natural gas and oil resources available to it. Now, this is a few years ago when nobody knew that any of that stuff was around in Israel. And my friend says, um, you want me to invest? Yeah, it's a pretty hefty investment, but I think you're perfect for the investment. He knows the guy. He knows the guy's trustworthy. He knows the guy's not going to rip him off. But he starts to think about it. He calls me up. What do you think? I said, oh, well, I'll tell you this. If it was me and I was in your position, I would throw all my money at it. What? Stop for a moment and look at what the Bible says about the region. Can you just stop for one moment and just consider a passage like Ezekiel 38? When Russia goes after Israel, there's a hook. Russia seeks a resource that Israel has that it does not have on its own. What could that resource be? The implication from all of the details I see in the scripture, which seem to imply that maybe it's oil. Now, I'm not telling you to blindly go invest in it. I'm saying after you do all of the due diligence, I think you could probably have a little bit of confidence in this, knowing that it's probably going to turn something for you that's going to be beneficial. He's a multimillionaire now, probably be a billionaire soon, right? Because he put his life and family savings on the line, knowing that the word of God is true and was willing to take the time to sharpen the ax and make the investment, understanding what it could possibly turn up. So not only is he an avid student of Bible prophecy and knows what's going to happen in the future, but he used that knowledge for his benefit. Make sense? You think about that. Ecclesiastes teaches you that. You, you go through Ecclesiastes, you begin to, re to realize it, right? I love some of the things. You know, it's not just beneficial for a, for a song that the Beatles write, <laughs> right? But it helps you to understand how these things work, how these mechanics work. All right, then we get to the Song of Songs. Now, I just want to simply say this. We call it Song of Solomon or Solomon's Song. I, I wish I had the time to give you a summary of how this actually works. But if you were to read the Song of Solomon right now, this would give you an idea of a dialogue that ensues. On its face, the dialogue is in between a king and a specific woman in some cases or many women in other cases, right? And right now, I could just read to you a series of verses and tell you who the king is, who the women are, and who the choir is. There's three characters, right? There's the choir, there's the king, and then there's the women, right? Song of Solomon, I'll give you an example. I'll just go over one pattern. I could do this for the whole book, but I'm just going to go over one pattern, okay? If you open up Song of Solomon right now, 
and you start at verse two, and this is just me, I might be off by one or two verses, I don't think I am, because I have these highlighted as a kind of a quick code that I put together myself for this. But when you start looking at this, let me, let me tell you why I recommend you do this. I would have three, I would put three colors in your Bible, right? Three highlight colors. Make a key for the colors. Make one color the women or the woman. Make the other color the choir. And make the other color the king or the man, right? In this context, it's going to be the king. Why is that important? I'll, I'll show you in a second. And this is why it's important to Bible prophecy. Let's start. Verse 1, Song of Solomon. We're not going to encode that with anything because it's not a character speaking, right? It's a simple declaration that says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, right? But let's look at this. This is very interesting. Verses 2, 3, and 4 are women talking. The end of verse 4 is the choir. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The end of that verse, the upright love thee, is women talking again. Okay? Verses 5, 6, 7 is women. Verse 8 is the choir. Verse 9, 10, and 11 is the king. The king speaks for the first time. Note that, it's significant, okay? Verse 12, 13, and 14 is the woman. Verse 15 is the king. Verse 16 is the woman. And verse 17 is the king. By the way, we'll just stop at this chapter and simply say this. There are many reasons why the enemy is using transgenderism to confuse a lot of boundaries and break a lot of issues that exist in the world today. One of them is, if I can confuse the line between men and women, I can invalidate a good portion of the Bible. He does that very quickly. Why is it important to understand the distinction between man and woman in the Song of Songs? Lots of guys teach through this passage in what I consider to be a corny and kind of a jacked up way. And they, they tell their churches, don't bring your kids in while we're teaching through this. This is the X-rated part of the Bible. I can't think of a more disgusting way to look at this. If you look at the three distinctions that I just gave you right now, you see a very beautiful and poetic picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. There's not a lot of people that teach this. By the way, the first time I ever heard anybody teach it this way is J. Vernon McGee who wasn't very heavy on the Bible prophecy side of things. But the brilliance of his assertion here was way ahead of his time. Super, super thoroughly understanding. But here's why this becomes significant. Because if this really is an allegorical picture, and in some cases there are typological pictures denoted here of Christ and his church, then the Song of Songs may be one of the most powerful and important keys to understanding how God acts in his prophetic calendar as it relates to the church. Not to the world, but as it relates to the church. Can I give you an example of this if you were to look at it through these eyes? Let's read the last part of chapter 2, where the king starts to talk, right? 
The last part of chapter two, he says this, verse 14, O my dove that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice and thy countenance is comely. Take us, the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. I don't have the time to get into the poetic implications of the beautiful terminology that's used here, but it's terminology that is oftentimes not understood by a lot of people. Let me help you understand a little bit of this very quickly. We use certain phrases in Arabic that if you heard me use those phrases and you understood the translation in English, you would actually call me a pig. You would say that I'm terribly insensitive and that I'm horrible. For example, my father used to use a phrase with my sister, oftentimes when he would look at my sister. He would say this to my sister when he would see her, and we still say this to her. He would say this phrase in Arabic, he would say, Ain al What the world does that mean? The eyes of a cow. You have cow's eyes. Okay? No woman in America wants to hear a man as a pickup line have any association with a cow at all, right? I mean, think about it. If you speak Spanish, the term vaca is not a term you want to use in context with a female, okay? It's terrible. It's derogatory. You don't do it. In the Arabic language, when you use that word, it may be perhaps one of the most beautiful compliments you can give a woman. It speaks about the fairness of her eyes. Because if you look at the eyes of a cow in the Middle Eastern mindset, they, they are denoting of these big, beautiful eyes that draw a picture of somebody who is spectacularly gorgeous. My dad would constantly share words like that with my sister, telling her how absolutely stunning she was. A good father will always do that to his daughters, by the way, just, just so that you know, right? That's what a good father does. In our culture, it's a beautiful phrase. In other cultures, it's incredibly insulting, right? What you just read right here might seem very uh, confusing, a little weird, like, come on, foxes and, <laughs> you know, what is all this? This is basically God saying something very different. He's saying, I see something spectacular about you. Something special. Something that should be cherished and protected in a very, very safe place. And just like a, a fox would go into the field and eat the grapes, the grapes we have together are so valuable that we should together collectively seek to protect that. Look at what the woman says in response. My beloved, listen to this. My beloved is mine and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies until the day break and the shadows flee away. Turn my beloved and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Betah. I don't have the time to talk about what they're talking about when they say a roe or a young heart, but I will just tell you this. There is a reciprocation in the initial expression being provided in verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 is the, is the king saying, I have something special in you. I see something that is worth protecting, that is worth keeping and saving. I see something beautiful and I see something worth my eyes beholding. And then you have the woman saying, 
I love you with all of my heart. Reciprocating by making a statement that says we are bonded together forever and we will never be separated and under no circumstances could I ever imagine anything different. Now, if you look at this and you just say, this is a man and a woman getting ready to ha, 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 ha. Okay. Ugly. If you really think about it, there's nothing about that that means really anything if there's no real value to it. Yes, it could be something, a, a beautiful picture within the context of marriage. But if you look at it through prophetic eyes, you begin to realize something substantial. This is a beautiful demarcation of what it looks like between Christ and his church. And if you understand the closeness that Christ has with his church, and yes, his ancestrally chosen people, the Jews, then every installment of Bible prophetic language, biblically prophetic language that you read is another piece to the puzzle that completes the love story. You get that? It completes the love story. If you don't know this stuff, how much of your pursuit of Bible prophecy will you lose? Make sense? You're not going to get it. You're not going to see it in its entirety. It's not going to make sense. You've been listening to Pastor James Cadiz on Light on the Hill and part of our series in the volume of the book. We're going from Genesis to Revelation, emphasizing the many passages pertinent to Bible prophecy. You can access today's study and any part of the series you may have missed online at lightonthehillradio.com or listen to Pastor James through the Light on the Hill app. Are you enjoying Light on the Hill? Send us an email and let us know the station you listen to and what you're getting out of these programs. It means a lot and helps us see what God is doing through the radio and internet ministries. There's a place to contact us at our website, lightonthehillradio.com. If the Lord leads, we'd also appreciate your financial partnership. Each gift that comes in goes straight to the ministry, helping us to get the word of God out on stations and platforms like this one all across the country. Donate online at lightonthehillradio.com or give through the Light on the Hill app. Have you seen the live shows and daily videos that we release on social media? Many of them relate to Bible prophecy and help understand current events with a biblical worldview. You'll find them at jamescadiz.com. Now back to the Song of Songs. Let's rejoin Pastor James in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice of her that bore her. The daughter saw her and blessed her, yea, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Meaning, if this is God speaking to the church, he's saying, I see something special in you. People look at you and understand how special you are. I have identified you with the worth and the value that you have. You are special and you are valuable. I recognize that I got the best. Look at what the choir says. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as the army with banners? Then the king goes on to say, I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. Or ever I was aware my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadab. That's, we don't even have the time to get over the implications of Aminadab, the story of that. Interesting stuff there, by the way. Look at the choir. Return, return, O Shulamite, return that we may look upon thee. 
This could be an angelic voice that's singing, or perhaps maybe even more significantly, this could resemble the voice of the Holy Spirit that continues to speak. I am not seeking to over-allegorize anything in this passage, but what I am saying is if you see this as a relationship between Christ and the church, and you begin to view the choir as either an angelic voice, but perhaps more significantly and very likely, even more likely, the voice of the Holy Spirit, you begin to realize how beautiful Bible prophecy should be to the church and why it's so incredibly important that we understand it through the eyes of a passage like this. You guys get what I'm saying? If you don't know the ebb and the flow of the natural patterns that you see in Scripture, especially with the expression of Christ in His church, you're never going to understand the full context of Bible prophecy as we are called by God to understand it. Make sense? But this is important stuff. And my encouragement to you is the next time you go through these passages, have an exploratory mindset that will help you better understand the bigger prophetic picture because, dare I say, it'll change your life. It'll completely change your life. It's powerful stuff. Don't let it escape you. Amen? We will look at Isaiah next time on Light on the Hill as our series in the volume of the book continues. This program is brought to you by Calvary Chapel Signal Hill online at lightonthehillradio.com. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Cause all 